It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I uh, switched on my TV the other day and there you were in the House of Commons. How, how was that? Weird. Is that your first time in... Virtual House of Commons. I mean, there's only like half a dozen of us there. Um, and then there was a there was a speaker and then there was um, one of the clerks had a sort of walkie-talkie, a bit like, um, you know, X Factor or sort of, you know, TV studio with a sort of microphone, obviously queuing up the virtual people. Um, so it was definitely... And then... And then what surprised me the most was that the Secretary of State, Alok Sharma, who I asked questions of, he then sort of departed, obviously good, I mean, it's right, for social distancing, and then somebody else arrived. It was sort of, it, it was definitely had a surrealism to it. Um, but there is going to be virtual voting, which is very exciting. Tell me more. Well, we're going to be able to vote electronically. You'll have an app on your phone. Well, I don't know about an app, but I mean, some, yeah, we, 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 we've been testing it out and it seems to work where we vote virtually. And I mean, the people have talked about this virtual voting for decades. I mean, goodness knows whether it will carry on after the crisis abates. But well, that, it's that's interesting. the interesting question, isn't it? If you will be able to do it on your phone or your computer or w- whatever it is, will you still have this strange system where you're working in I your know. office and a bell I rings know. and then you have to sprint through a tunnel and, and get into a lobby? I know, it's interesting. Now, before we go any further, I think we need to get on to some sort of praise here. Ed, you did the most thoughtful thing on my wife's birthday. I mean, it's quite noticeable how my faux pas of failing to remember your birthday was like top of the show, you know, bang, <laughs> cold open, you know, as they say on Saturday Night Live, you know, where were you, you yeah. so-and-so, you didn't remember my birthday. But the but the positive thing, you know, it, it required a sort of large degree of fishing from me sort of it was you know. it was so so thoughtful of you ed for our state mandated exercise on her birthday we walked to home base and we got back and you had so thoughtfully uh, had uh, had a cake delivered with happy birthday sarah iced onto it and then it said and jeff in brackets 
I thought that was the right calibration, which is it was Sarah's birthday, mm. so I didn't want to sort of diminish Sarah's birthday. But on the other hand, I hadn't got a cake for your birthday, so mm. I wanted to sort of get you kind of, you know, equal, not equal, but sort of, you know, kind of best supporting actor. But I didn't want to muscle in too much on her birthday either. Well, that's and why I, know... I didn't want to put Sarah and Jeff without the brackets. Right. I mean, that was so, it was some, it required quite a lot of discussion with the person on the phone about the precise calibration. <laughs> so if they got previous with this and they said, look, we've, we know exactly what to do in this situation, you use parentheses. Well, I was initially, I'll be honest with you, I was initially Sarah and Jeff without the brackets. Then I thought that Sarah might be pissed off because it was like, you know, diminishing her birthday. So then I thought the brackets were appropriate. Mm. But how did you feel about the brackets? Well, I, I felt fine. And I know Sarah immediately on receipt of the cake sent to you, she said, a oh, very nice message, email. message Ed to say thank you. So she emailed yeah. you immediately. Yeah. But then I got a needy text from you a few hours later yeah. asking about the cake. And I, I thought, didn't think because it was... The one thing I could do with you is send you a needy text. Because <laughs> one needy texter yeah, yes. will recognise another. Takes one another. to no one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas I felt like it was... The the, uh, the the response the weight of responsibility was on her to thank you for the cake, and I thought I could address it the next time I spoke to you. But obviously, right. that wasn't enough for you. I mean, I think if the but if the cake had just said "Happy Birthday, Sarah," that might mm. have been acceptable. <laughs> but gi- given that you know you got a bracket. I was definitely going to acknowledge it. I just didn't think it needed. I didn't think it needed the the immediate acknowledgement that it would have done had it been my birthday. No, it didn't require the fulsome email that I got from Sarah, but it probably <laughs> needed a text rather than me having to fish. And then at least a sort of you know early entry in our chatteroo this week would have been so, good. So how have we ended up in a situation where you didn't send me anything on my birthday and then two <laughs> weeks later you put me in brackets on my wife's birthday cake and yet I'm the one being shamed? I think you're not being shamed, just sort of mildly told off. <laughs> it was great. It was very thoughtful. You are right, okay. you're a great guy. Well, I, should... I, just, I just want to get back out of overdraft in the bank with you. Yeah, yes. And I think sort of... More or less, I'm out of overdraft, although I've probably complained too much about your non-responsiveness, <laughs> which has probably put me back in the red. I sort of, I kind of, can, I can sort of ignore, freely acknowledge that. It was, it was a lovely cake, and 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 really, what you did, uh, I think, has inspired this week's episode in some yes. ways because we're talking about the goodness of people. This week, we're talking about a truly radical idea that people are fundamentally decent. The Dutch historian Rutger Bregman has written a great new book called Humankind. I really strongly recommend it. He argues that we often assume the worst about people, but actually most people, most of the time, are trying to do the right thing, including me in relation to the cake, although that obviously happened too late for the book. We're going to be talking to Rutger about his argument about human nature and why he thinks changing our assumptions about human nature could have a big, big impact on politics and our society. Then we're going to chat to Sam Ma, one of thousands of volunteers around the country involved in COVID mutual aid groups. Uh, amidst everything that's been going on the last few months, groups like this show that people's instinct in crises is often to help each other. And then we're going to be talking to constructive journalism campaigner Jodie Jackson, and she's part of a growing movement of people arguing that we need a more balanced approach to news rather than just showing the worst of humanity. What's your reason to be cheerful? 
Well, I was going to say cake. the cake. I had this whole bit prepared where I was going to talk oh, about no. your generosity and how it had given oh, me a reason no. to be cheerful this week. But oh, you very no. needily interjected. Um, oh, and, no. And you've, you've scuppered my plans. So instead, I'll give you... Um, I think one of the things about lockdown, I mean, that, yeah. that has been a positive is... Is my cake. Is um, your cake. Is, is, yeah being around our neighbours a lot more we don't you know we, yeah. we social distance but we can hear them yeah. hear them over the hedge and on, on sunday morning um i heard mr deary next door singing strawberry fields forever and that that brought a lot of joy to me oh that's fantastic not as much as the cake but you know it's 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 something what's your reason to be cheerful this week so my reason to be cheerful is that the bbc and the bbc's done brilliantly in this crisis they have released various sets from old tv programs from the bbc archive which you can use on zoom calls and i think i might go for the one for multicolored swap shop it's got an oh one oh one for london don't tell me oh one eight double one eight oh five five yeah you're just very good aren't you i've got that number committed to memory have you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, I used to always be trying to call up Swap Shop from the rotary phone in the hall of our house. But my dad said you'll never get through because the people who live in London don't have to dial 01, so they'll get through quicker. Uh, but I tell you, it's such, a, it's such an amazing array. Doctor Who, Blake 7, Not the 9 O'Clock News, The Good Life... Are You Being Served, Only Fools and Horses, Blankety Blank, The Young Ones, Victoria Wood, Heidi High... Hello, hello, tweenies. Anyway, you get the impression. But it quite takes me back to TV programmes of the 1970s and 80s, doesn't it, Jeff? Yeah. That's my reason to be cheerful. Zoom backgrounds. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm delighted to say that we are now joined uh, by Rutger Bregman, who has written uh, a book that I would strongly recommend that was sent to me a couple of months back. It's called Humankind. A hopeful history, and it will make you uh, both hopeful and enlightened. Rutka, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's ask the sort of perennial lockdown question. Wh- where are you locked down and how is it going? <laughs> so I live in a small place called Houten. It's a little bit to the south of Utrecht in the Netherlands. And, uh, you know, it's a lovely, boring place. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a very weird experience doing a book tour remotely, right? Just Be- better or worse. Home and, yeah. Um, well, you know, I can't admit that I rather like it. Uh, sorry, I can't deny. Sorry that I that I rather like it um, because, um, yeah, I don't like the traveling. Of you don't have to leave your house. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's very efficient. <laughs> now let's talk about your book. Um, and um, I mean, I, I think to start with, I said it's very uplifting. Tell us, tell us, or rather, our listeners your argument about which is really an argument about human nature that mm-hmm. you set in set out in the book and how this differs from from what we so often hear and we'll come to some of the stories we hear mm-hmm. yeah so there's an old idea within western culture and this goes back all the way to the ancient greeks and the idea is that civilization is only a thin veneer right and as soon as something happens say a natural disaster or you shipwreck on an island or, you know, you're suddenly left on your own, that people reveal their true selves, right? When civilization is gone, we reveal that actually we are animals, 
monsters, you know, deep down, we're all selfish. Now, this is a really powerful, deeply embedded idea in Western culture. You know, the, the Asian Greeks had it. It was with the uh, Christian church fathers, you know, St. Augustine, the idea that we're all born as sinners. If you read many of the Enlightenment philosophers, whether it's David Hume or Thomas Hobbes or Adam Smith, uh, you also keep finding this idea that deep down we're all selfish. And if you think about the ideology that basically governed our society for the past 40 years, you know, ever since uh, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution uh, that many people call neoliberalism, well, what is the central dogma of neoliberals? It's most people are selfish. Deal with it and design your whole society around that idea. So, um, that's really where I start the book. I, I basically try to show that veneer theory is utterly, completely wrong. You know, it's uh, there's a huge amount of scientific evidence that actually when people shipwreck on an island or when there's a natural disaster, when people are suddenly, you know, in this crisis, then you get an explosion of altruism and cooperation. It, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because you talk early in the book about the Lord of the Flies, the William Golding mm. Um, novel and and yeah. in a way you know that's quite a good maybe starting point isn't it because mm-hmm. there's the lord of the flies and then there's a sort of real life example yeah yeah it's one of the classic examples of veneer theory you know uh a couple of kids uh have are in an air crash airplane crash and and you know end up on this uninhabited island and they at first they try sort of setting up a democracy of sorts but it doesn't really work out. And at the end of the novel, three of them are dead. And then, you know, they've gone nuts and crazy, you know, it's horrible tribal behavior. And um, the message of the novel was, look, here you have nicely uh, or, or, you know, well-behaved uh, British boys from a very good boarding school, but you leave them on an, on an island and this is, ha- this, will ha- this is what happens, you know? And it was also seen as sort of an explanation for the horrors of the 20th century, you know? How do we explain the Holocaust? How do we explain the Second World War? Well, there's a Nazi in each and every one of us, you know? William Golding, the author of Lord of the Flies, said that himself, uh, that he... Sort of, he said, "I understand the Nazis because I am of that sort by nature." Um, so, I mean, I remember reading this book, *Lord of the Flies*, when I was sixteen or seventeen years old, and it was like this coming-of-age experience, right? I think many people have had this—that you get this feeling like, "Okay, no more Harry Potter for me." You know, now this is a, like a real story how real kids would actually behave. Um, and I, I remember being a little bit depressed, but also thought, you know, this is probably, yeah, this is probably true. It was only years later that I thought, you know, has this ever actually been tried? You know, has there ever been a scientific experiment, you know, where they would actually drop kids on an island and see what will happen? So uh, I'm obviously, I'm a proper uh, investigative journalist. And um, I started Googling, uh, (laughs) you know, just looking for things like uh, uh, children on an island, real life Lord of the Flies. And after a while, I stumbled upon an anecdote on some obscure blog that told this story that supposedly this had happened in 1977, that uh, kids from a boarding school in Tonga, which is an island group in the Pacific Ocean, um, had shipwrecked on a small island called Ata, and that they had survived there for more than a year and had been rescued by a captain and, and that they supposedly had stayed friends all this time. You know, very hopeful, uplifting story. That it actually did happen, but not in 1977. That was a typo, but it did happen in 1966. So I had this article uh, from The Age, an Australian newspaper, that said that six kids had just been rescued from an island by the captain named Peter Warner. And then I thought, 
you know, maybe these people are still alive, right? It was 2017, and I thought, you know, the captain must be around 90 years old by now. I mean, could, he could still be alive, and the kids should be around 70, right? And there were six of them, so maybe I can find them. And pure luck would have it that I was about to go on a book tour to Australia to, you know, talk about my previous book, Utopia for Realists. And, uh, you know, people are really helpful. So you just email and uh, a couple of people. And then uh, after a long chain of emails, you finally get the address of this 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 old captain. And we drove there, my, my wife and, uh, and I, and, um, and we met him. And he told the story of, of what really happened in the real life Lord of the Flies. And I can assure you that if this would be a movie or, you know, some Hollywood epic, people would say, this is terrible. You know, this is worse than love, actually. You know, this is the most <laughs> sentimental, unrealistic, naive And it was nothing like what... The Lord of the Flies, basically. They were they looked yeah. after each other, all of the positive things that you would hope for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's really... The real Lord of the Flies is a story of friend, uh, friendship and resilience and, and, and loyalty and, and comradeship. It's um, like every... In every single way, it's the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies. They get the fire started after a couple of months and they never let it go out, you know, for more than a year. And they have this this very smart way of organizing themselves. They work in, in pairs of two, right? Two to guard, two to cook, two to tend to the garden. Um, sometimes they're in fights, but then what happens is that one of the boys will go to one side of the island and the other will go to the other side of the island. They would cool off a little bit, then come back, cry a little bit and say sorry. And, you know, it's, I can't help it. It's really sentimental, but that's how it actually happened. Rutger, can I ask you to tell us about the idea of homo puppy that you introduced in the book? Sure. So one of the reasons that I started writing this book is that I got the impression that something exciting was going on in science in the past 15 to 20 years. So scientists from very diverse disciplines sociologists, anthropologists, biologists, archaeologists, you name it, have all been moving from a quite cynical view of human nature to a much more hopeful, optimistic view of human nature. And one of the best examples is is what happened in evolutionary biology. You know, when I first learned of evolution theory, I thought it was quite depressing, even though realistic idea, right? Um, We all know Richard Dawkins' famous book, The Selfish Gene, right? That if you read reviews on Amazon of that book, there are many people saying, oh, this is such a good book, but I wish I never read it because now I'm so depressed. (laughs) And uh, he has this line somewhere in the book that he he says, you know, we just got to teach people generosity and altruism because we are born selfish, right? That's just who we are. So another expression of this veneer theory. Now, actually, biology has been moving in a very different direction in the past 10 to 20 years. What biologists now believe is actually that for thousands of years, it was the friendliest among us who had the most kids and still had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. They literally talk about survival of the friendliest. And now why did this happen? Well, actually, because sort of being friendly is our big evolutionary advantage. It means that we can cooperate on a scale that no other animal in the animal kingdom can do, right? So we have all kinds of peculiar features. For example, we're the only species in the animal kingdom that blush, which is really weird, right? Why would you blush? Why would you involuntarily give away your feelings to someone else? I mean, it's not very Machiavellian. Um, But we do it because it helps us to cooperate and to trust each other. And this is really the central thing that we 
that you got to know about human beings is that we have been designed by evolution to trust each other most of the time. And that is why we built pyramids and castles and musea while the Neanderthals are on display there instead of the other way around. So that is a really, really exciting and I think important finding from biology. I mean, I think what is so exciting about your book is that you methodically go through so many of the sort of examples, the scientific experiments, the things that are supposed to show that people are fundamentally bad to mm. say, and you sort of do a process of debunking um, yeah. and show that, that, you know, and I won't go through all the whole long list, but, you know, that the experiment was not what it was said to be or, you you know, when it's re-examined, it shows something different. So having said all that, then, why do we have this negative view of human nature? Okay, I think there are a couple of important reasons. So on the surface, you obviously have the information system, right? The, the kind of information that we consume on a daily basis, which is the news, right? And we all know the news is mostly about the negative, right? Corruption, violence, violence, terrorism. So if you watch a lot of the news, at the end of the day, you know exactly how the world doesn't work. But then if you go a little bit deeper than that, and you ask the question, who benefits from this cynical view of human nature? The answer is quite simple. It is those in power benefit, right? Because if we cannot trust each other, then we need them. Then we need the generals and the monarchs and the kings and the queens and you name it to keep us in check, right? So this sort of this classic Hobbesian view that if people were free, you would get this war of all against all is also a classic conservative argument. And it's an argument for hierarchy. And this is also why the argument that I make in my book that people are actually pretty decent is a really dangerous idea. People may think, oh, there's a nice warm book about some warm, nice idea, you know, the power of kindness. Well, actually, if you really think it through, it means revolution, right? It means we can organize our, organize our society in a completely different way. And I think this is also the reason why throughout history, those who have advocated a more hopeful view of hum human nature have often been persecuted, right? Whether you think about the 19th century anarchists, you know, uh, Kropotkin, Emma Goldman, and the many examples who had a more realistic, hopeful view of human nature, but, you know, were followed around the globe by the secret service and those in power because they understood that this, this view of human nature is really dangerous. Let, let's talk about how we square this positive view of human nature with the fact that people also do terrible things at the most excessive war, genocide, murder, mm -hmm. etc. Well, this is obviously the big question that hangs over this whole project and this whole book, right? How can you ever write a book about human kindness and human cooperation, all, the, all those wonderful things, when we are clearly also the cruelest species in the whole animal kingdom, right? There, are, I've never heard of a penguin that says, mm, let's lock up another group of penguins, right? And exterminate them and kill them. It's like a typically human thing to do. Um, so I obviously, I mean, I can't, sort of, this is one of the big qu questions of history anyway. So I can only sort of give a, I think a beginning of an answer here. But if we, for example, look at this new theory from, from biologists, right? That we have evolved to be friendly and work together. I think we have to recognize that there's also a dark side to friendliness and to loyalty and to comradeship. Uh, the dark side is tribal behavior or groupish behavior, right? That people find it very hard to go against the group or against the status quo, even when history is moving in a horrible, terrible direction, right? In the book, I give the example of the, the German uh, Wehrmacht, you know, the German army 
during the Second World War. And, um, you know, one of the fascinating things is that it, it was the most powerful fighting force probably throughout history, right? It was incredibly effective. Historians later estimated that, you know, German, a German soldier was on average 50% more effective than an Allied soldier um, in terms of, you know, casualties. Um, but then they, they kept fighting in 1944 and 1945, and the question is why, you know, it was clear that they were losing, right? The Russians were coming in the East, especially after D-Day, you know, it was, it was a lost cause for the Germans, but they were fighting harder than ever. And the Allied thought initially, Allied psychologists thought that it was because they were so brainwashed, right? That they were just, had this maniac ideology and that they were fighting for that. But then they started interviewing prisoners of war, and they suddenly discovered that they had it all wrong. That actually, the, sort of the powerful ingredient that made the Germans fight harder than than all the others was comradeship. They were really fighting for their friends, and that kept coming up in interview after interview. And um, th- which is, I don't know, it's a very uncomfortable, dark finding that so often things that we consider as good, right, loyalty, comradeship, friendship, are also often implicated in our most horrible crimes. Rutka, before we go on to your um, sort of recommendations flowing from the thesis that you advance in the book, can I ask a sort of an, another question about the thesis itself? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, this sort of occurred to me as I was reading the book. Is one plausible explanation for some of what we observe in crises moments? So, you talk about, you know, uh, Britain during the Blitz, um, well, as well as actually, as well as Germany, actually, mm. uh, when it was being bombed, or when natural disasters happen. Um, uh, is one of the reasons for this that the that the sort of background ethos of the society of of our society mm. is a very competitive? very capitalistic, very atomistic ethos, which mm-hmm. pushes people in a certain direction. But at times of crisis, in some sense, those imperatives are sort of removed and fade into the background. And that, mm-hmm. in a sense, liberates the sort of, you know, essential decency of people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I sort of have a double idea about this. So, on the one hand, I think that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them, right? So often your view of human nature can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and, you know, if you really think that people deep down are all selfish, then you'll design your institutions around that idea. You know, you get the a particular kind of boarding school, for example, or a kind of, you know, organization that's really about cutthroat competition. You know, think about the the London financial sector, um, uh, so many other examples. And sort of you get the kind of people that your theory presupposes. And obviously the argument that I make is that we can turn it around, right? We, if we design our society with institutions that really assume that most people are not selfish but want to cooperate, then that's the kind of people that we're going to get. But at the same time, I'm also saying that the latter would also be the more natural way to go. because You could say it as in this way – Human beings have two legs, right? We stand on two legs. We have a social leg and a selfish leg, but we sort of have a natural preference for our social leg, right? Um, sort of often 
competition and selfishness are highly unnatural for us, and we also pay a price for it, right? Loneliness, for example, we know that loneliness is, is similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, right? It's really unhealthy. Your body sort of says, no, we don't want that. If you think about violence, violence is psychologically actually really hard for us to do, you know? Uh, we've been brainwashed by, you know, decades of Hollywood movies and series like Game of Thrones, which give us the impression that it's really easy to shove down a sword someone, right? Actually, it's almost impossible for most of us. And, and there's a huge amount of evidence that killing in a war is really damaging to your own psychological health, which suggests to me that this is not sort of what we're meant to do, you know? We're not by evolution designed sort of to kill other people. Actually, you find it really hard. So if if there was a widespread reframing across politics about how we see people, if we started with the assumption that, that human nature is good, what would the implications of that be on, on different policies like education or criminal justice? Mm -hmm. uh, so many things to say about this. Maybe we should start with the recognition that Yes, most people are pretty decent, but on the other hand, power corrupts. So this is something that nomadic hunter-gatherers already knew, you know, for thousands of years, is that power is an incredibly dangerous drug. There's now evidence from neurology, from psychology, you name it, that those who have, you know, really used this drug too much, like if you put them in a brain scanner, it looks as if their brain is damaged, right? Like like someone hit them on the head. You can think about, for example, you know, some of the world leaders right now, you know, whether you think about Trump or Bolsonaro, and, and then imagine them in prehistory, right? Being part of an, a hunter-gatherer tribe. They would die really quickly, you know, because the group wouldn't like them. They would be shamed. Then it turns out that they couldn't blush, which wouldn't be good for them either. And uh, then they would be expelled and die alone. Right. Well, now we have a society where you don't have survival of the friendliest, but often survival of the shameless. Right. So this is a this is a really an indictment of the so-called democratic system that we have right now is that actually being shameless has become an, a political advantage. Right. And that sh really should make us question, you know, what's going on here? How is it possible that this system that we call democracy actually benefits those who are without shame? Um, I think that if we sort of update our view of human nature to a more realistic one and then think about how we should design our democracy, it it becomes obvious that it should become a much more participatory democracy where power is much more distrib dis distributed than it is right now. And there have been experiments since the 19, what is it, 80s, uh, really started in, in, in Latin America uh, with participatory budgeting, for example, or other kinds of participatory democracy where you just randomly choose um uh, civilians from the population to become politician for a year. And I think that's a good direction of thought, and we should experiment with that way more. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it, And it really starts with the recognition that power corrupts. This is also partly the reason why I wrote the book, because I started to understand that so many of the exciting ideas that are in the air right now, whether you talk about citizen assemblies or about universal basic income, you know, uh, my previous book was about that. Um, I started to understand that all these ideas presuppose a completely different view of human nature. And then I realized back in 2015 when I started writing this book is that I personally didn't have that view of human nature. You know, I had studied history, so obviously I ha was, you know, a bit more cynical. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, 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 I wondered, you know, 
if I sort of could make the argument that actually it, it could also be realistic and rational to to hope for the best in other people. On something like universal basic income, which we've talked about a lot in the past on the podcast, mm-hmm. how is that connected to your theme of humankind and the decency of people? Well, what I experienced, I, I was mainly talking about all these scientific experiments, right? That happened ever since the 1970s in Canada and the US and so many other places. We've recently got this new report out from Finland that shows some really good results. You know, it turns out, no, people are not massively lazy. Don't stop working. There's actually a mild positive effect on employment and people's well-being increases, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I went on a book tour and always talking, giving all these examples like, look, people, it actually works. But then again and again, after 30 or 40 minutes, I found myself in a very different discussion. People were not interested in the scientific evidence anymore. They would say, well, that's just maybe that happens on a local scale or maybe in this particular period in history in that small experiment. But in the end, you know, human nature, right? Deep down, people are just selfish. People are lazy. That's what you have to deal with. And that is why basic income is never going to work because it assumes a completely unrealistic view of human nature. So that's when I realized that I uh, I should have written another book first, right? Before I could talk about things like basic income. You really have to start at the beginning uh, with how do you actually look at other people? And and really I think that's what's so interesting is you've gone you've gone to the sort of roots of some of this some of these ideas that you were putting forward in Utopia for Realists because because you know you've got to sort of persuade people on the roots of the uh, what sort of lies beneath these ideas? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the current crisis, and I, and I suppose in a way this conversation sort of reinforces in my mind that we have to be careful about the way we describe this mm. response to crisis because I suppose what I take from your book is that our our default is to describe the positive solidaristic response to the crisis as somehow a sort of exceptional behavior in people, whereas your argument is it's natural behavior in people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but tell us a little bit about what you think about the current crisis and, and sort of how it relates to your thesis. Yeah. So the big question right now is the shock doctrine or a paradise built in hell? So to explain that, the shock doctrine, a book by Naomi Klein, you know, the great Canadian author who basically made the argument that crises are often abused by those in power to basically grab more power and you know the book is a history of neoliberalism in which it she shows how crises have always you know been abused in this way and then the other book is by rebecca solnit uh, a paradise built in hell in which she describes how people respond how average people you know on the ground bottom-up respond to disasters and she she talks about you know the huge amount of sociological evidence we have uh you know ever since the 1960s got more than 700 case studies now that show that every single time you've got a disaster like this you get this explosion of of, of altruism right um so that's the big question uh and and the the future is i think completely uncertain there are signs that the world's dominant ideology that governed the world for the past 40 years is breaking right now i mean uh, you've probably seen this financial times editorial from the from the beginning of april right where the financial times you know the world's biggest business paper is talking about how we need to take ideas like taxing the wealthy and and basic income etc more seriously i i couldn't believe my eyes when i was reading that i mean it was just a couple of years ago that they were going nuts about piketty and sort of trying to describe him as a sort of a 
uh, a fraudulent economist or something like that. And now you can clearly see that sort of the ideas that used to be dismissed as unreasonable or, or unrealistic, they're all moving into the mainstream, right? Right now. And if you look at polls, you know, there was just this poll that came out, I think this week, where they discovered that 70% of Europeans now think a universal basic income is a good idea. And I have no clue in which direction we're going right now. <laughs> well, that's all up to us, I suppose. Look, Rutger, yeah. I, I really want to thank you for joining us. The book is uh, Humankind, A Hopeful History. It is published uh, next week on the 19th of May. I can't, as I said at the outset, I really strongly recommend this this book. I think I would have been recommending it anyway, but particularly at this moment when we all need uh, reasons to be cheerful and reasons for hope. It is it is a very hopeful book. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're going to hear now a, a story of what Rutger was talking about in action, human kindness in action. We're going to talk to Sam Ma, who is a coordinator of the COVID Mutual Aid Group in McCuntleth in Wales. Uh, so, so what is the story of how you got involved in the McCuntleth COVID Mutual Aid Group then? So a couple of weeks before lockdown, um, I think it was around 10th or 11th of March. It was just after Italy had locked down. Um, my husband's company uh, shut down their offices because there had been a confirmed case of COVID in connection with a member of their staff. And we decided, OK, well, we'll, we'll self-isolate. We'll just be super, super cautious. Um, we might be in a chain of infection. We don't want to bring this infection to our community. We don't want to be the people who introduce it. Um, so we'll we'll just self-isolate. And that really brought home to me the fact that there were going to be people stuck in their houses um, who couldn't get food and couldn't get medications. And while that was okay for someone like me, there were other people who aren't connected, who don't have people they can rely on or who rely on carers. And if those carers got ill, what would happen? Um, 
So we started talking with friends, um, people who were already having those kind of concerns themselves. And then we heard about the, the fledgling mutual aid network that was coming up in London and decided that we probably needed a bit of that ourselves in here in West Wales. And, and what does that mutual aid look like? How many people are involved? What kind of things do you do to help people? We're a kind of distributed network, I guess, of self-organising local groups. So each of the villages and each of the areas in town have their own neighbourhood network. It was decided very early on that in order for people to be able to trust each other, they needed to know the faces. You couldn't just parachute people in from outside. Um, So we've got, we estimate it's around about 500 people across all of these different networks um, working together to support their neighbours and to support each other. And what does that support look like? What, what, What are you doing? Um, so it's as simple as making sure that, you know, if someone's self-isolating and they need some essential items from the local supermarket, that someone goes and picks those up. Um, we work with a local volunteering agency to make sure that people who can't nominate someone to pick up prescriptions can get a trusted volunteer to go and do that work for them. Um, people are walking people's dogs, they're cutting firewood for them. You know, it's this all kind of just everyday stuff that, um, that people need help with. Sam, can you tell us about what you personally have been doing as part of this? So what I've been doing is I've been work, kind of working out what issues we need to address, things like DBS checks and safeguarding and who we need to talk to so we're not duplicating efforts, so we're not getting under people's feet. Um, I've designed some leaflets. <laughs> designed a logo, which is not terribly helpful. Are but, you a designer you know, by trade? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and just networking with people who are having different conversations. So I'm on Facebook a lot, looking at what people are talking about and connecting up people who are talking about the same things. Um, so yeah, so yeah, saying, right, okay, well, someone's got a pot of money here for making scrubs. These people are interested in making visors. They've got similar interests. They should talk to each other. And yeah, I've I've done some shopping for a couple of people and yeah, they they were very happy to have their rice pudding and mini rolls. <laughs> and and is your community that type of a place generally in your experience or, or have you seen a different side of people and connected in a different way because of this crisis? We've always been a very active community. There have always been um, groups of people doing things that are important to them. Um, and people looking out for their neighbours. Um, you know, we're, we're a very rural community, so if, if people get cut off in the snow for like a couple of years ago, it was the farmers who were getting out on their tractors and making sure that people had their prescriptions, and it was the local cafes who were making sure that elderly people were getting, getting the meals they needed. It's, it's what people do around here. Um, but it's, it's more so, I think, because this can affect everyone. So it was a much a much wider problem than just uh just your usual stuff and what do you think it says sam about um the community and people that so many that that the response of so many people was to to get involved in mutual aid groups Mm. i I think first and foremost it's it's very clear that 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 people feel responsible for the welfare of people around them. You know, this this whole idea that there's no such thing as society, I think, is rubbish. Um, 
people do want to make sure that the people around them aren't hurting aren't suffering um so that's you know very heartening but it also yeah i've had conversations with friends where they felt they had to step in because it was very clear that the government wasn't going to be equipped to deal with this crisis and yeah no government is probably um it's something that's huge but after 10 years of austerity uh people were looking at their health care and their social care provision you know people know nurses they know carers they know people who work in the third sector and those people were incredibly strained um and they didn't want those people to break along with the social safety net and if you think beyond the lockdown and i know it's quite hard to think beyond the lockdown but do you think your group will last beyond lockdown? I really hope so. I think this is a real opportunity for for people to imagine a different way that society can can be. You know, nineteen forty we're we're bought the we're in the V Day celebrations today. And in nineteen forty five there was a real determination that a rising tide would lift all boats. I think there's a real opportunity here for a just recovery look at the inequalities and the, the the problems that we've got and try and address them um in a way that that brings people along and engages them and and yeah makes more sense well look sam it's great to talk to you it's incredibly inspiring uh what you're doing i'm sure lots of people listening to what you've just said about the future of society will agree thank you so much for joining us and thank you for what you've been doing to talk about the way uh, that we think about these issues and the way the media portrays them, uh, we're joined now by Jodie Jackson, who's a campaigner for what I think she calls constructive journalism and author of You Are What You Read. Jodie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us the thesis of your book, um, of, of, of You Are What You Read, and about, about your view about what the, the world the media often portrays and what impact it has on our view of other people. The premise of the book is really taking a more deliberate approach to our mental health. You know, when it comes to our physical health, there's been this shift in consciousness about the way in which we eat food and exercise to be able to take care of our physical health. And our mind is no different, really. You know, the way we consume information, um, it will affect the way in which we think about the world, um, each other, and ultimately affect our well-being. Um, and this really comes from the fact that the news in the UK and you know, in most places around the world, is incredibly negative. So we have in the UK this kind of depressing news mantra of if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and that governs a lot of what is selected for our news coverage. And what this does is it magnifies stories of problems, failures, death, um, corruption and natural disasters. And as consumers, this then becomes all that we see because at the same time it minimises and often ignores stories of solutions, progress, peace building and development. And, and so we're not made aware of them in the same way. And because of this thing in psychology called the availability theory, the more we see something, the more common we believe it to be. So this overrepresentation of problems combined with this underrepresentation of solutions gives us a very distorted picture of the world. And how does your view about the negativity bias of the news affect all of us, do you think? And you've hinted at this in the first answer. 
So, so my work focuses on the psychological impact of the news and the kind of behavioral consequences of that. So then how we participate um, in society. And it's really important when I say these as well, it's not the effects of watching just one news story about one problem. It's the effects of the continuous and excessive reporting on problems over a long period of time without that balanced understanding of what's being done about them. And um, what it's been shown to do is it can increase our levels of anxiety, um, pessimism and depression. And these feelings linger even after we switch off from the news because we become so well rehearsed at feeling them. And it can make us feel quite helpless. These problems just seem too big to solve. But our reduced efforts to help can also be explained because of an increase in feelings of contempt and hostility towards other people. And this is because, you know, when you watch the news, you're getting the worst of humanity kind of reflected back at you. And ultimately, the message is people are bad and their actions are threatening to us. And what that can do as well is it can make us feel um, fearful. And this is also an emotion that reduces our kind of collective behavior because it's quite a self-focused emotion. So, so we kind of, we care more about ourselves than other people. And the, the last thing that can stop us caring about other people as a result is that we just become desensitized. So we become so used to hearing about the extreme and the extraordinary that it actually becomes very normal and ordinary. Um, and so rather than meeting these stories that do deserve the kind of shock and outrage that they're telling, uh, we we just don't notice them in the same way. Now, lots of people who are listening to you will, will have sympathy with what you're saying. But equally, people might say, well, look, there are lots and lots of things that are wrong with the world. Um, doesn't, you know, the, the, the so-called negativity of the news just reflect reality? It reflects a part of reality, sure, as in there are some really terrible things going on in the world. And one of the most valuable functions that the press has is to bring that to our attention, because unless we're made aware of a problem, we're not in a position to be able to confront and correct it. So it is a good thing. Uh, but just because something's good, it doesn't mean its benefits are endless. And when we have too much of it, it does move from being helpful to becoming harmful. Can you talk to us about your idea of constructive journalism? What, what is it and how does it overcome the issues you've identified? Um, so it's always before I start saying what it is, I always say what it's not because it's got a very um, well-established misconception so it's not fluffy, light-hearted, feel-good stories that's kind of a distraction from the main narrative. It's, it's much more investigative than that. So the way that I describe it is that it's investigative news that reports critically on tangible progress being made in order for us to understand how these issues are being dealt with. And what's really critical about this um, topic is that we still learn about the problem, but we're recognising that the problem isn't always the end of the story. So in traditional journalism, you have the five W's, the who, what, where, when, why. And constructive journalism will say, well, you need a sixth. You need what next? So you're taking a longer time frame on an issue. So you're not saying we're not going to look at that problem over there. We're going to look at this over there. You're actually saying we're going to look at all of it. And we recognize that the problem might be the starting point, but we can see how it transitions. And we can actually ask what people are doing in response to it, what solutions are being put in place and ask if they're working. You know, we're not celebrating them, we're investigating them and we're reporting on them. And it upholds a lot of the same functions of the press, like being able to hold power to account. 
you know, one of the things that we've seen in this pandemic is the success stories elsewhere, which has put pressure on our government to say, well, hang on, it is solvable. There are measures that are being taken that are working. Why aren't we doing them here? And it accelerates progress, actually, by seeing what's working rather than just learning from what's not. Are there any outlets that you think do constructive journalism well? Yes. So there, and it's amazing. I've been doing this for about 10 years from the consumer side. Um, But it's changed so much in the last 10 years um, in terms of there's a growing number of niche organisations that specifically practice it. There's a wider number of mainstream news organisations that have made space for it. So on my website, um, and I'm not meaning to plug here, but on my website, joliejackson.com, I do have a starter kit. So anyone that does want to look at what good constructive journalism looks like, there's a list of news organisations that practice it in some way. But it's, yeah, it's a, it's a growing movement and it's an exciting time for it, I think. Is, is part of this, Jody, that you want an ecosystem where there is straight investigation, you know, without necessarily the constructive bit, but also the constructive bit? I mean, I'm just thinking, I watched a couple of weeks back with my kids um, a film called All the President's Men about uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein and the exposure of Watergate. And in a sense, you know, that is just straight exposure of wrongdoing, And I guess I think it's quite important to sort of emphasise in this conversation. I mean, you're not saying that doesn't have its place, are you? I think that's incredibly valuable. I mean, that is hugely valuable. And they are idols within the journalism industry, rightly so. Um, And I think that the bravery that a lot of journalists face to put themselves in harm's way in many different aspects to bring us a truth is, is worth praising. What I'm talking about is what we're not praising. So it's not, you know, when you talk about solutions and problems, they're they're discussed very competitively, as if by advocating for one, you're um, going against the other. And what I'm saying is I absolutely recognise the value of problems-focused news reporting. It's a necessity that keeps us safe. Um, It puts pressure on government legislators to, to make sure that we're squashing out the ills of the world. But rather than just looking at the pathologies to create, you know, somewhere that's decent it's looking also at what's thriving what's working what are these stories that we can learn from um so that we can you know build on it we're only getting one story and don't get me wrong it's an incredibly important one but it's not the only one jody jackson uh your book is uh, you are what you read and you've given your website to people thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me so what did you think? I liked it. I know you think I'm this terrible misanthrope, but a, uh, an argument that I will often have with my wife... Only about my cake, yeah. I don't think you can be a misanthrope about a cake. Would that make me a cake-anthrope? I don't, I don't know. We need some, yeah, uh, some linguists to put us straight on that one. But um, an argument I often have with my wife, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, is I, I think if two people were stranded on a desert island and there was one coconut, they would share the coconut, they would split it, whereas my wife thinks one person would bash the other on the head with it and keep the coconut to themselves. And I, I enjoyed hearing from Rutger that the, the, the science is backing up my argument. I, I think R- Rutger's book is really excellent. And, you know, it's so interesting because I think I partly think about the experience of the floods in my constituency and you know, the, the kind of outpouring of help that people provided to each other was, was seen as remarkable um 
you know, and and people, I think what was so interesting about it was people didn't need to be asked. You know, in the flooded village of uh, Fish Lake, there was like, you know, people kind of driving at some personal risk to, to, to sort of get, you know, food in, ferry people out, you know, do all kinds of things. And... And, and people didn't need to be asked to do it. They just sort of did it. And and, and that was true, you know, in, in all of the parts of my constituency. And I think sort of reading Rutger's book, which I've read over the last few weeks, um, you know, it's quite an affirming book because it's sort of, it, it kind of, it says, you know, this isn't, that kind of behaviour isn't the exception. That is what people truly are like. But But I think... I think the portrayal of people is really important. So Tim Harford wrote this piece about how actually people are really decent in a crisis. And he makes this point about how much panic buying there really was during this crisis. And it's really fascinating, this. Kantar Consultancy told me that a mere 3% of shoppers had actually brought extraordinary amounts of pasta. And I think there's something about the way... and, and, And there's this author called Cialdini, and his whole thing is... When people get told that lots of other people are behaving badly, it's more likely that they're going to behave badly. And I think there's something about the way things get portrayed which give us quite a negative view of people. And Jody makes some really good points about journalism and the stories that are chosen in the media and how they're portrayed. But it's not just about that. It's about how we think of each other in a broader culture. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on this week's podcast about the ideas of Rutger Bregman um, or other things that you've heard on this podcast or other ideas for future podcasts, please do let us know. Get in touch. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. This one comes from Chloe Glover. Uh, Hi, Jeff and Ed. Greetings from Holmfirth. Last week, you questioned if your show has put the phrase Reasons to be Cheerful back in vogue. Here's evidence that it's had influence off the social media channels too. Your show has inspired our daily lockdown diary, where we only write positive things that have happened to us each day. Admittedly, most of the entries are to do with food we've eaten, but I'm certainly not (laughs) complaining. I don't know if you do birthday lockdown shout-outs, but if you do, saying a big happy birthday to my boyfriend Tom for May 16th would be a strong contender for top cheerful moment of our diary so far. Happy birthday, top boyfriend Tom. Happy birthday, Thanks for bringing smiles. Happy birthday, Tom. Thanks thanks for... It's boyfriend, Tom, actually. Thanks for bringing smiles to our faces and please give Chutney a biscuit <laughs> for us. For, for people who uh, maybe are listening for the first time this week, do you want to remind us who Chutney is? Chutney is our fantastic and incredibly well-behaved dog. Brackets fictional. Close brackets. Sorry to have gone about brackets again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this comes from Jason Goddard, who says in brackets in downtown lockdown <laughs> Ballum, um, he says... These bloody brackets, they get they everywhere, do. don't they? Uh, he says, hi both. It was great to discover that Ed is an expert on Google metrics or sort of Google, you know, Google doodle doodars doodah thing, as he called it on the last episode. That was uh, that was a real Edism, I thought. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, and, and can I just say that I... Later that evening, uh, I had a look on Google Trends and I realised that we've been just looking at searches for the phrase reasons to be cheerful in the United States. Uh, And if you look in the UK, there is, in fact, a big spike when we started the podcast. Really? 
Yes. That's good. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. We're in the outro. And actually, I've got a new webcam on my computer. Now, unfortunately, um, and this may be reflected in the first interview we did, my computer, my old computer is so noisy as a desktop that I've had to abandon the webcam. But it but it provides a good picture, a good view of my bookcase, actually. And I've been complimented on it. Uh, have you been on the telly being interviewed on Skype or on Well, Zoom? yes. Yes, I have. But that's what led to the whole football manager... Oh, fake of course, news, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fake news thing. But, you know, it's funny because you have to be careful about your books. So I don't know whether you remember this, but a few months back I had this absolute disaster in a, in a bookshop where I spilt coffee all over the, like, a whole number of books. I, I do notice that on my floor is a, a curious history of sex. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't sort of, I haven't put it central to the bookcase, I've got to say. Because <laughs> that was one of the books that you spilled coffee on and then had to pay for. It was, for. it was, exactly. Oh, you should, de- the next time you're doing a TV, you should definitely Well, you think I should put it front and centre? Yeah, definitely. I think it might enhance my credibility. <laughs> Oh, um, quick reminder that if you haven't yet signed up for our newsletter, then you must do so. It'll give you something to uh, look at during the week. More detail on the episodes and what we talk about, more more information, more in-depth research. And you can sign up if you look at the description of this episode. You can sign up in there or go to cheerfulpodcast.com. And it really is a cracking read, the, the newsletter. And, you know, lots and lots of people want to go deeper into the subjects we talk about on this podcast, maybe you know, engage in activism on them or, you know, think further about them, discuss it with their friends. And you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it. So do sign up. Uh, I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Rutka Bregman, Sam Marr and Jody Jackson. Emma Caution produces our podcast with research from Joel Pearson, back up from Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon uh, made the little eye dents and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been bracket. He's been hinge. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.